Pigweed here. Today we review an amber ale and discuss Judaism. Hello and welcome to Beer and Conversation with Pigweed and Crow Hill. Good evening, Crow Hill. Good evening, Pigweed. So what's on your mind? So I think you know that I've I've wasted uh, large portions of my life trying to figure out, like, Protestant-Catholic dispute things. Right. right. One of the big disputes between Protestants and Catholics is how do you know which books belong in the Bible? Okay. Okay. And, of course, the, the Christian Bible is divided between the Hebrew Bible and the, the New Testament, right? Yes. So the question that I have is how do Jews know which books go in the Hebrew Bible? Yeah, okay. Um, I just don't think I'm going to be much help here. No? Uh, no, I really can't weigh in on this topic very much. This is going to be a short show. If, okay. uh, if uh, can, can, can you at least like tell me how many books there are in the Hebrew Bible? Couldn't even do that. <laughs> okay, well, I think we need, we need some help here. We do need some help. <laughs> we do need some help, yes. So, okay, uh, well, that's fortunately, I have a good friend, J.R., known him for many, many years, great guy, uh, and he teaches... Uh, Jewish school. Oh, good. So, uh, so we'll call him in and see, yeah, oh, see good, if we can help him. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sweating there a little bit. <laughs> but I do yeah. know a thing or two about beer. Yes. And here but I don't know have. much about this one. So um, one of the younger Crow Hills was going to Manor Hill Brewing, just up the street. And I, I, I gave him some money and I said, uh, you know, buy me what's good. All right. And this is what he came back okay. with. Okay. Manners, Mild Manners Amber Ale. Mild Mannered Mannered Amber Ale. Mm-hmm. And it is it is mild mannered. It's five point three, which is respectable, and uh, lovely ember color. And that uh, those lightly. So it's family owned, farm brewed, and it's what you expect. What I expect mm. out of an amber ale is little less hops than a pale ale. Yeah, and I expect a little bit darker color, so maybe a little bit more malt. And even those uh, hops tend to be on the I don't know what would you call the. Not earthy, the, yeah, earthy side rather exactly. than the citrusy side. Exactly, not the sticky side. side, not the citrusy side. That's right. Yeah, and this this seems to go right down that line. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, it's very nice. yes, and has a nice fall color and fall flavor, mm -hmm. as I'm concerned. Yeah, so I like it. Very good. So if you happen to be in Maryland and you're up that way, drop by Manor Hill and and uh, tell them Pigweed and Crowhill sent you. Okay, <laughs> and let's. Talk to JR. Yeah, all right, let's get him on the line. So, Pigweed, I'm really happy to announce that we've got my old buddy JR, who I've known for many, many years, great guy, and um, very knowledgeable about our subject matter. Excellent. But also, there's another thing you got to know about JR. And I, this is a warning for the, any of the ladies who are listening. Ah. And that is JR's mellifluous tones have been known to make <laughs> women swoon. Okay. He's got a, a radio voice. Yes. It's just this. This deep, resonant voice that, you know, so ladies, just guard your hearts and... Uh, Enjoy. Here, yes, exactly. Here we go. All right. So, JR, good to have you. Oh, nice to be here. I'm big oh. fans of the show and happy to participate. All right. Fantastic. So, we want to just start, dive in and start asking you some questions about Judaism. Sure. Okay. Well, let's start with the very first commandment. Yeah. It's a good place to start. Uh, so, to me, it's it sounds like God, So it, which is what? I shall have no other gods before me. Right. Right. So that 
uh, God is acknowledging other gods for other people, but saying, however, for you people, I am specifically your God. And for a little bit further, is, is it seems like they, God as uh, the, the term chosen people, right? Mm-hmm. Jews are the chosen people of God. In a different way than Christians see their God and Christ as for the entire world, and that's why there's so much uh, missionary work and proselytizing because you know we got to get out there and get the word out because God is there for everyone. While Jews don't seem to proselytize, and there's this sense that I get that uh, it's well, it's really just our thing for our God. What do you think about that? No, I, I think that's generally true. Okay. Um, you know, this concept of chosenness has sometimes gotten us into some trouble. It's, it's not meant as a kind of chauvinistic um, description. It, it simply means that God gave us a particular revelation in Mount Sinai. Uh-huh. We received the Torah and all that's within it. Um, but it does not necessarily preclude that revelations were made to other peoples. Yeah, so, so for example, I guess, you know, Moses' father-in-law, the priest of Midian, um, there's some there's some recognition at least of some validity in in what he was doing. Yeah, I mean I'm not I'm not an expert on, on that. Uh, and let me just also preface generally I'm not speaking here as a scholar or a rabbi of Judaism. I you know I'm, I was born Jewish. I'm very happy to live Jewishly, but but if you were to you know ask these questions of scholars and rabbis, you might get different. Yes, sure, sure. We're not scholars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just somebody with a lot more knowledge than we have. have. That's right. That's exactly right. So, now, go ahead. I mean, I was going to address the proselytizing. So, no, we don't generally proselytize. Um, I think partly because it was often used against us in very negative and even deadly ways Mm -hmm. by other religions trying to convert us at, at the price of the sword otherwise. And so, I think we have frowned on that we probably are probably some of the more orthodox are more apt to kind of proselytize internally to try and get right the lesser observant to be more observant right so, so like, and we make conversion very difficult so people want to come in it's quite a high bar yeah i imagine now to what degree is uh are jews a religion and a race so is, is it it's is it more exclusive for the Jewish race, or as opposed to somebody coming from the outside to come in and become a Jew? Or, or would they be considered a real Jew if they married a Jew and became Jewish? Well, certainly, yes. Like okay. All they would be. And in fact, sometimes those who convert are, are more zealous and observant huh. than those who huh. was born into it. Yeah, that's often the case in a lot of yeah, religions. But, you know, so, so actually, JR, in my studies of the New Testament, there was a lot of Jewish proselytizing going on at that time. Um, there, there's a lot. There was a there was a time when Jews did proselytize, but but they did. It, it's certainly not recently. And I think your explanation mm-hmm. that it's kind of huh. a kind of a reflection on um, you know bad treatment, and you know look we don't want to treat other we don't want other people treating us this way. We're not treating them that way. That's that, that seems to be a, a reasonable explanation for why did it change? Why, right. why did Judaism stop being involved in proselytizing? Right. I've never been handed a, a brochure at a subway station uh, being welcome to synagogue. Well, you know, you know my, my grandfather was uh, was at, went to visit my 
long-lost relatives out in Kansas. And uh, apparently when he showed up, somebody said, well, look at the old rabbi. <laughs> That's the closest has <laughs> ever, ever come. And, and, Wait, yeah. he, had cool, he had an awesome beard? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and he, he sort of looked like a rabbi, to tell you the truth. Yeah. All right, so, J.R., it seems to me that there's a hierarchy of authority in Judaism. There's the Torah, there's the writings and the prophets, and then there's the Talmud. Can, can you kind of unpack that a little bit and explain how that works? Yes, no, you're right. I mean, the Torah, we believe, was handed down at Mount Sinai, or at least most of it. There's, there's a view that the book of Deuteronomy might have been written later because of some of the phrasing in it. Sure. Um, but yes, the Torah has priority. It spells out the commandments, or what we call in Hebrew the mitzvot, you're supposed to live by. Um, and, but, and then there's, yes, the writings, including the prophets, kind of elaborate on that. Um, the prophets <clears throat> believe they receive their own revelations from God, which they were supposed to transmit to the people as a kind of a warning to, you know, do better or disaster's going to strike. Um, and then there are other, uh, writings such as the Talmud, which is really just like a, a rabbinical debating society. They held these debates, they still do over, over things in the Torah, and the, you'll see in the Talmud that the column is full of, in the margins of the columns are, are, these, are these debates fleshed out. So that's that's the hierarchy, basically. And there's, of course, there's been lots of other writings by secular Jews over the centuries people rely on. Right, mm -hmm. so so how do, how do Jews know which books belong in the Hebrew Bible? Well, you've got the first five books of Moses, of course, and then the prophets and the writings. I mean, the, you know, the rabbis were very much a rabbinic religion now since the destruction of the temples. So the rabbis determined what the canon was going to be. And there are a few books that are left out. For example, um, the story of Purim, I think that, that right. is not. It's in Maccabees, right, yeah. Right, other books too. Uh, but it's really, um, as the rabbis call in that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, supposedly there was a, some people say there was a council in the first century where that kind of stuff was decided, but I'm not really sure about the details on that. So, the what... The compilation is called the Tanakh. Yeah. The Hebrew word. That actually came up at Trivia a couple of weeks ago. So, um... There you go. How, how, about, how about this next one? Um, do modern Jews have an expectation of a Messiah? And if so, what does that mean? Well, you'll get a lot of debate on that. Um, yes, I would say in general, we believe the Messiah come when the Messiah is ready and will usher in a world of peace and harmony. Um, there's a concept called, in Hebrew called Olam Haba, the world to come. Um, but we don't think the world is yet ready for the Messiah. That's where we depart from Christianity. I think, accurately, you know, believe the Messiah is already here. Um, yeah, it's sort of a mixed bag, because in, in a way, in a way, I mean, Christians also await a Messiah in a way. I mean, there's there's the idea of the second coming. So the, the one big difference between Christianity and Judaism would be, in Judaism, you believe in a Messiah who's going to come and establish world peace, and that's, that's it. Where in Christianity, you had this first appearing where Christ died on the cross and all that sort of stuff, but then he's supposed to come again to, to usher in the kingdom. So it's a, it's a it's it's almost like a, a, a two-parter instead of a one-parter. It is a two, right? So, what is the where does Jesus fit in for the Jews? Right? Was he was he a prophet or was he just wrong? 
Well, he was born Jewish, and he was a yeah. prophet until he started prophesizing against the religion. At that point, he was cast out as, as our prophet. Uh, I got it. That makes sense. Yeah. So, the one thing that, <clears throat> and I think this is probably a difference between different forms of Judaism, and maybe you can elaborate on that, but did, did Jews believe in an afterlife? Yes, although if you ask most Jews, I think who don't, you know, haven't studied it very much, probably would tell you no, because of the emphasis Christianity puts on it. But in fact, um, reference to the afterlife are, are um, in our daily prayers, we talk about God will resurrect the dead. Hmm. Um, it's hinted at in the Torah, it's not really explained, um, but we don't really put a lot of stock in it. We focus more, much more heavily on the here and now, what we can do in the current world to make it better. Uh, and really, um, this was in part a revolt against practices of the countries in which we found ourselves, including particularly Egypt, which kind of venerated death. You know, they built mausoleums to the pharaohs and I think they even equipped them with items to use in the afterlife. And so we uh-huh. kind of recoiled at that. Uh, yeah. Folks, right. But, for, for, but for, for Christians, that's the payoff. The deal is, look, these are the rules to live by, and if you do it right, you'll, you'll be judged in the end, and there's a massive reward. And that's kind of, you know, that's kind of the M.O. of, of, of Christianity, which doesn't sound like what you're saying. No, it's not. I mean, uh, we, okay. We hope that we will be judged. Right. But when we, you know, we pray for that, especially during a, during a high holiday season, we ask God to seal us in the book of life. Um, but we, we put the emphasis on, on this world. You know, we, we believe we were brought to this world um, to make it better, to help prepare, to make it more just and more livable. Right. And so if we put too much of our focus on the afterlife, we might, that might be a distraction to this world. Right, but there's a big emphasis, even in the philosophy, the, the, the dualism of the, of the, the, the soul, and the body, and the soul. And it's the soul that's eternal and separate from the body. And, the, and that's a big part of Christianity. This, that soul does something different than the body does. And that's... So yeah, so there, actually, that's, that's actually an interesting question. Is there much discussion in Judaism about the distinction between body and soul? Um, there's some, you know, the souls referred to as nefesh. Um, you know, for example, there's a, I think a mystical belief on the, on the Shabbat that Jew is given a second soul, like an extra recharge of the batteries, a recharge of the spiritual self. Uh-huh. So I think that distinction exists. Uh, and I, I imagine you would find many Jews who believe that when, you know, once our physical bodies are, are dead, that our, our soul and our spirit lives on in some way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Certainly through our descendants or our children. I think Judaism, in a way, <clears throat> sticks more with the kind of the wisdom tradition in in the Hebrew Bible, which emphasizes more, you know, the right way to live. If you live this way, things will will be good for you. It's and, a big, right, but it isn't. It, is, it can't be that things will work out better for you because it's been a, a, a history of persecution. So, you are you saying uh, individually in your your lived Life, yeah, that well, it's a better way to. That's it's a it's a more sa- it's a satisfying way to live. So I'll, I'll ask Jr.'s yeah. opinion on this, but but I I think I think the reaction of the the wisdom tradition in general would be when when 
when someone makes a, says a proverb, something like, you know, train a child in the way he will go, and when he's old he will not depart from it, they're not trying to say that this is some absolute rule, that if you do, you know, if you do A, B will result. They're trying to say, as a general rule, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. Okay. So, so Jr., tell me if that is that more in line with the way Jews would think about, um, you know, following the commandments is obviously not a a guarantee that your life will be easy and uh, free of trouble, but it's maybe no, not at all. Yeah, it's, but That's it's right. but like a better bet, I suppose, would be a way to put it. Yes, I mean you do the right thing because it's the right thing. Yeah, because it helps your fellow man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Makes the world better. And then that's that's your legacy. That's what I have to learn. Right, right. So that, and, you know, at Jewish funeral, it's often talked, they rarely talk about how observant the person was, but they will talk, talk about the values they embody and how those are, and, and there's a real belief that, um, for example, a parent never really dies. A parent was on through their children. And, and, you know, as you say, the wisdom and the values of the parent are, are transmitted down. Mm-hmm. So, so what about this this one? Um, most people who know anything at all about Judaism know it from the Hebrew Bible, which is uh, full of animal sacrifice. You know, you've got right. Moses, there's lots of animal sacrifice in the Torah. Uh, the temple, obviously, there was lots of sacrifice for under David and Solomon. So how do modern Jews understand the animal sacrifice? I think we understand it as an artifact of the ancient temple when it stood. You know, it was the religious center. Um, people sacrificed animals for different reasons. There were what were called opponent sacrifices. There were um, just sac- sacrifices of giving thanks. Um, and people would bring their choicest animals up, especially during the pilgrimage holidays on the Jewish calendar and sacrifice them. Um, but I think, I think, particularly among the non-Orthodox, it's, it's viewed more as a relic of Judaism now than certainly a living part because we don't do it anymore. Once the temple was destroyed, there were no more animal sacrifices. And it was replaced by um, really an emphasis on other things such as prayer and charity, mm-hmm. what we call the loving kindness. Right, but like you said, if, if you were sacrificing a, a, a prized animal, right, something that could help your family, then it's it's just... It's a, it's a personal sacrifice, right? That you are giving up something that you could really be used for your own personal good. Yes. Yeah, so I could see that you could translate that into any kind of self-denial or something like that as a, as sacrifice. And a portion of the sacrifice also went to the precinct class because they weren't allowed to work. Right. Not far into They were devoted entirely to the religious rituals. Ah, right. So they had to be, had to be taken care of somewhere. Sacrifices serve that utilitarian purpose for them. Jr., have you ever heard this? Just occurred to me. Have you ever heard uh, Jordan Peterson's explanation of sacrifice? No. It's actually it's actually kind of interesting. He he likes to emphasize that a lot of things were acted out before we actually understood them. That in the development of human consciousness over time, that we would we would do things. And and only kind of later come to understand what they meant. And in terms before of, you could articulate the meaning, yeah, before you could, could articulate the meaning, there was some sort of deep understanding that you couldn't really articulate. And and the concept of sacrifice was basically a belief in the future 
the idea that I could give away something today that would have benefit in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and so from that, from that kind of perspective, sacrifice is almost like a transitional thing between one state of consciousness or state of mind or, or something like that. And so f- from that sort of perspective, sacrifice itself isn't what's necessary. What's necessary is the concept of understanding that, well, uh, understanding sacrifice in the broader sense, not in the specific sense of a, a, a sheep or a dove or something, right. but understanding sacrifice in the sense of I'm giving up something today that's going to be of benefit in the future. Well, yeah, you, in that sense, you would be uh, cultivating uh, deferred gratification, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is critical to uh, to a society. Any kind like, of moral yeah, thinking, yeah. yeah. Right. Or moral thinking, or even just, like, getting through the winter. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, we can't eat everything right now. <laughs> We've got to store it up and think about the future, and then, right? So so having a sense of, of deferred gratification is critical for, for yeah. social development, anyway. So, the, so that's... I'm sorry, I was going to say, I think there's also the sense that God didn't really need the sacrifices. But it was more for the more something the people needed as an expression, right, of their love for God. Yeah, and and later on they found other other less violent ways to convey that. Yeah, like for example, there's the there's the concept of the scapegoat in in the law, where the sins were laid on the on the goat and it ran off into the wilderness. It was just it was this. Just it was kind of like that's obviously not for God's benefit. It's for the people's benefit to think, you know, in some in some sense, our sins are being taken away from us. Big weed here. We love receiving comments from our listeners, and so if you have something to contribute, comment, disagree, we'd love to hear it. We can be reached at bigweedshow at gmail.com. Just called pigweed, but Crowhill will listen to. Is there anything to the idea of the Abraham story being the end of child sacrifice? Mm. That this is when Judaism said, all right, we're not doing that anymore, and we're going to replace child sacrifice with with animal sacrifice. Well, sure. I mean, uh, after the angel intervened to stop Abraham, they they sacrificed a ram that was in the bush. Right, but do you think that in ancient Judaism there was child sacrifice that they were that that this story is sort of putting in putting a stop to um not that i'm aware I okay mean, you know it went on in societies in which jews were living actually that brings uh, up an weird. interesting question to me though jr is is like where where do you where would you define the beginning of judaism like yeah, like, what did Judaism yeah, look like in Abraham's time? Yeah, well, so, so yeah, so the question, I mean, Judaism, Judah, was one of the sons of Jacob. So, and that's way, way after Abraham. So, like, so, like, where would you define the beginning of Judaism? I would say with Abraham, because that's when God made the covenant. Right. With Abraham and his descendants. Yeah. He was also the first Jew to be circumcised. Right. Also, something okay. Um That's where I would place it. I think you know the the Genesis story until then is, is really about humanity in general. Yeah, no differentiating. Right. What is the uh, after the 
creation of the world. What, what, what is in Genesis before you get to Exodus? Is well, you have Tower of Babel and you have the flood. Oh, okay, that's yeah. all. Yeah. Okay, right. yeah. So, okay, well, that's. I think that's a good answer, Jr. That that because um, you know Abraham is the man of faith. He was the first to be circumcised. Well, I know he wasn't the first to be circumcised, but um, <clears throat> I mean, other circumcision was a was a, a custom in other areas, but but it was the first indication of circumcision as part of this relationship with God. Okay. And yes. And um, also there's you're you're right there's the promise there's the promise of the land there's the promise of the people the promise of being a blessing to all the nations. So I th- I think you're probably right. That's that's a good that's a good answer. Well, I think I think we've covered our religious questions unless you had another one. Mm, uh, no. Okay, I'm ready to move on. Okay. All right. So so we have a couple of uh, identity questions. Do you want to do that before the, the political? Oh, yeah, yeah. This actually, actually, this is. I, I think it works better, better that way. Yeah. So, so we saw this uh, this survey, Jews United for Justice, and one of the questions was, "My Jewish identity is best described as," and it lists all these names that I don't even know. Like Ashkenazi, I know that. Conservative, I know that. But then, like one of them, Mizrachi. I don't know what that is. I'm not quite sure and myself. Really? Sephardi. Well, Sephardic. Oh, so Sephardi? Actually, actually Ashkenazi and Sephardi, those are the two that I would have expected. Because yes. the, the Ashkenazi, correct me if I'm wrong, but Ashkenazi like trace their lineage back more to the Holy Land and the Sephardi are more like the diaspora. Is that is that right? Well, the Ashkenazi are, I guess, the Holy Land was you know, Europe primarily. Ash- Sephardi are more Spain. Sephardi. It's a similar for Spain, so more of the Spanish-speaking countries. Oh, okay. Okay, interesting. And, um... But Northern Africa, too. Yeah, so then then we also get into these distinctions. How about the three R's here? Yeah, reform, renewal, and reconstructionist. What's that about? All right, well, reform Judaism is, you know, on the spectrum of observance, probably the least observance. Um, So, basically, the three large branches of Judaism are conservative, I belong to Orthodox and Reform. Um, and Reform was kind of, you know, a reaction to Orthodoxy. Not wanting to be quite as strict on certain things. Um, Reconstruction, as its name implies, kind of tried to rebuild the religion. Renewal, I'm not quite sure what that is. I mean, we were a very diverse religion with lots of different branches and tributaries. Now, and, and would each of these, would, would there be different synagogues that had different emphasis, or would you find a variety of these people all in the same synagogue? No, you would tend to find synagogues specializing in one or the okay. other. Okay. You know, for example, the synagogue I belong to was conservative. We adhere to the principles of the conservative movement and the forum adheres to their principles and orthodoxy. So, there's, there's not a whole, whole lot of commingling, hmm. at least in synagogue life. Well, well let, me, let, let me combine the uh, Orthodox, conservative, and the previous questions of Messiah and Israel, okay. which is those who, those who should, but it's a simple question, uh, those who think that Israel is not legitimate until, until there is a Messiah. Mm. Right, there shouldn't. It, yeah, because I've right. run, I've run, in, I've run into uh, Jews out on the street who are who are like against Israel. Oddly, yes, and who yeah. are extremely religious. Yes, they're and very against, very and, observant. And, and, right, but but 
they're against the state of Israel. So what's that about? Well, um, I think it's because they feel that it's up to God to decide when Israel is going to be restored. Uh Not Not the United Nations. (laughs) No, right. Right. Yeah. Um, It's it's God's call. Um, And in fact, you know, the early Zionists who fought for the creation of the state of Israel were all seculars. Theodore Herzl, he was a secular Jew. Ah. Yeah. So there's always been a difference in the religious view of Israel versus the secular. Right. And so what... What is the relationship between the observant weekly synagogue Jew and the High Holy Day uh, observant or it's like cultural in, Jew? It's like in Catholicism, you have the the people who come on Christmas and Easter, and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. right, right, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, some people are, are regular synagogue goers; others are more what you might call cultural Jews. Mm-hmm. Jewish food; they keep kosher. Or they marry within the religion. Yeah, and what? It's necessarily a barometer of Judaism as a whole. And I guess guess marrying outside the religion would just be something that's would vary between the various the the various identities that we spoke of. Like in some ways, it's culturally Jews, uh, cultural Jews, and uh, Reform Jews. It wouldn't be a big deal, and others, uh, it is a big deal. Right, I mean, two of my children are married to non-Jews, so, um, which, you know, is technically uh, a violation of Jewish law, and, and a conservative rabbi would not be able to perform such a marriage. But at the same time, we want to be welcoming. We, we, we try to look for ways to include in the interfaith, because that's the real world in which we live. Uh-huh. Yeah, I used to, I used to know a Lutheran pastor who said, uh, you know, look, we have these rules, but you can't unscramble an egg. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. once things once things get messed up, you got to kind of deal with it. Exactly. So, um, so Pigweed, you know, sees these things that come by his desk, and some of them have to do with like stuff like ending the occupation. Um, yes, yeah, so we're, we're moving on to a slightly the, the slightly political end of the of the discussion right. here. Yeah. So this, well, actually, let's go back to the the, the question before that mm-hmm. to, to to warm up is. Uh, this one here, that it seems like, in many ways, it's conservative Christians and American Republicans who are Israel's best friends. Why? Maybe only friends. Maybe, Maybe only friends. Yeah. 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 And why is there such a tendency for American Jews to be liberal? Well, here, I love you guys, but I think you're very wrong in that assumption. Okay, um, good. Love, love for Israel is not limited to any political persuasion or party. And you have to make a distinction between um, wanting there to be a Jewish state, Jewish homeland, yeah, that can defend itself versus support for a particular government. Uh, particularly when um, the last Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, was in office, there was a large divide in the American Jewish spectrum about people who didn't necessarily support his policies, including policies affecting the Palestinians and the territories versus those who still have a, a great fondness and emotional tie to Judaism. So it's not the case that only conservative Republicans and, and um, born-again Christians support uh, Israel. I mean, plenty of Jews do. Plenty of other people do. It's just, it just doesn't always mean they support the particular government in power at the time. 
So, so you would say that that um, Democrats support Israel; they just don't support certain administrations in Israel. Correct. Right. But it does seem. Yeah, I mean, again, I don't want to. I don't want to generalize too much. Yes. Because uh, it's a general. Well, it does seem like on the question of on the question of the, um, you know, what are called the occupied territories, there does seem to be a, a political dividing line there. Yes. Uh, so, it's my understanding. I I always thought the occupied territories were when there was an actual occupation of Gaza and the West Bank, and that's been it's been a long time since then. So when they when. Jews say end the occupation. What what are they referring to? And I know the Palestinians are probably saying end the occupation means get Israel out of out of the Middle East. Uh, and so, but what do people mean? What's what's the what is being occupied? That is not well, does not belong to Israel. Well, I think it means um, kind of running the show. You know, um, you know military presence, even if Israel troops are not in those territories, you know, Israel decides what goods flow in and out, decides what commerce they can have, uh, tries to deny them weaponry, uh, feels they have, the right to, they have the right to cross into those territories when uh, rockets are fired against them. So I think, I think you know, the Palestinians simply want to have their own state recognized internationally, that they can rule themselves. Hmm. Well, <laughs> so, so, so you're saying, I guess what you're saying is that the, in, in American political lingo, that, that the left would support, uh, a Israel that did not include the West Bank and totally withdrew its, uh, hegemony over the West Bank, uh, but would still support Israel, that, that, that Israel, without that control of the West Bank. Is that what you're saying? Yes, I think that's, as a general, I don't want to speak for everyone, of course, but as a general proposition, I think that's true. I mean, certainly some on the left are against Israel. No question about it. Um, what? I mean, certainly there's, there's a lot. There's, there's anti-Zionist movement. So. Yeah, and there's a so whole lot there. of anti-Zionism in, in the academy and on, on the academic left. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you have to understand the position Israel is in. They, they Attacked immediately upon the creation in 1948. They were surrounded by enemies. Um, exactly. So what, I, what, what I'm what I'm thinking is, if Israel gave up those things that you talked about, and we just said, okay, you can do anything you want with all of this UN money, and uh, it's none of our business. It's to their own detriment. Potentially, certainly. I mean, that's you know, there's been such hesitancy about the whole land for peace formula and the two state solution. There's been some talk about having just a one-state solution in which, you know, Ar- Arabs could live as equal citizens in Israel. Um, you know, the feeling that two-state solution is not workable because the states will never, never resolve the differences. Yeah, exactly. So I think in many ways asking Israel to back off is asking Israel to, uh, you know, cut its own throat. Well, every time they've backed off, there's been a negative reaction. They withdrew from Lebanon. Hamas used Lebanon as a launching point. Right. They withdrew from Gaza. The, the rockets kept going. I mean, the, the only things that really worked are the formal peace treaties with, say, Egypt and Jordan, and now the what they call the Abrahamic Accords. Do you think those that, that was a good deal, the Abrahamic Accords? 
I do. Um, I don't like to give our fire administration very much credit, but I do think, you know, any nation you can take off the, the battlefield from Israel, I think, is a plus. Yeah. Not that these companies were immediate military threats, um, but, you know, it's far better to compete in the area of commerce, I think, and, and tourism and that kind of free flow of free flow between peoples. Wouldn't it be nice if we all competed on that kind of stuff <laughs> instead of like shooting bombs at each other? Good right. grief. Absolutely, but but the but the, the the policy has been for thirty years, fifty years that there's you you can't have those kind of agreements until you solve the Palestinian problem first. And I think that that's what this showed that we well it you don't no, really not, have to. It's yeah. not not everybody have everybody all the Arabs in the Middle East don't have Palestine on their minds when they're thinking about their own self interest. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so we got another question for you, which is more of a historical question. And, and we've touched this a little bit in the context of animal sacrifice, but what is the role of the temple and the Holy Land in modern Judaism? All right, so, um, you know, the temple was the center of religious life centuries ago, and it was destroyed once and destroyed again. So we mourn its destruction. There's a even a holiday in observance in the summer called the Tisha B'Av, in which the central theme is mourning the destruction of the synagogue. Hmm. Uh, some also would like it to come back. More, some, some of the more orthodox um, people, I think, would would like there to be a, a third temple. Um, but I think for the majority of non-orthodox, the temple is more of a kind of historical interest, but there's still an emotional pull there. I mean, you see the videos of people Praying there, right? So there's just that one wall that that's left from the original temple. I believe so. Yes. And where is it in relate? You know, geographically to the divisions in in the city of Jerusalem. Well, well, it's part of what's called the Holy Mount. So the the Alaska Mosque Mosque is on top of it. I think. I think. Right. You see the dome behind it. That's a kind of a problem that they're all kind of squeezed together. Yeah. So I, I don't think most modern Jews pine for a return to the temple. But we, we understand significance, what it stood for. And we mourn its destruction and the, and the loss of life as well. And the loss of a way of life. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, 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 read, the, I read a political book a long, long time ago um, where a president was confronted with some radical Orthodox Jewish sect went in and destroyed the Dome of the Rock and started uh, built, rebuilding the Third Temple. And, you know, this, the president was like an evangelical Christian president. <laughs> right. and, and so he, on the one hand, he wanted to support Israel, but he's like, what do I do? <laughs> it, was, it was a pretty, I mean, there, there could be, it could be pretty even nasty if something, if something funny like that, not, I don't mean funny in the sense of ha-ha, but if something weird happened, in Jerusalem like that, it could, it could really, uh, in this book, it was like starting World War Three. Yes, well, it sounds like it would. <laughs> I mean, Jew- Jewish access to the holy site wasn't really secured until the 67 war. Right. And Israel took that part of, that part under occupation because the Arabs were not very good about accommodating Jews at that site. Yeah, so you know, from, this, so from from forty eight to sixty seven, there wasn't Jewish access to the to the wall. I think there was, but uh. I think it was 
somewhat hit or miss. Uh, okay. So, okay, so this is, this is going to be a very controversial statement, but yeah. in a way, the 67 war was almost like a crusade. Remember our show on the Crusades? <laughs> yeah. We were saying that a lot of it was a matter of letting Christians have access back to the Holy Land. Yeah. And in, in, a, in a sense, there's a, there's a parallel there, and just like being able to have access to the site. But it wasn't, uh, it wasn't initiated for that purpose, right? It was retaliatory, and then... Well, yeah, it was a self-defense thing. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like all of, like all of the, the wars were. Yeah, why is it that the Jews were able to defeat the, the, their enemies so easily? Because they had the good fortune of fighting Arabs. <laughs> that was a setup. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so JR, that's, that's our questions. Um, that, we, you know, we really appreciate you helping us out with these things. Do you have any questions for us or any comments or any else, anything else you'd like to add? No, except that, uh, I feel I'm always learning about Judaism. Uh, it's such a vast religion. And as much as I know, or people think I know, I, I feel like I only know a sliver of the whole. I mean, there's some writings and things I've never really studied. There's a whole branch of mysticism. That's a whole other area. I just feel like I'm learning every day. Have you tried to the opportunity to talk about it? Have you tried to learn Hebrew? Not really. No, I, I actually, as a sidelight teacher religious school, and part of it's Hebrew instruction, but it's more the Hebrew of what you need to get through your bar blackness, and that is the Hebrew of the prayer book, and the Hebrew for your Torah reading. Mm-hmm. But no, I haven't, and, and I've not been to Israel either, which is definitely on the agenda. I like to joke in my family, I, I'm the only one who has never been to Israel and never went to an Obama rally, <laughs> so the joke is I should have gone to Israel Obama. <laughs> my wife and I hope to go in a couple of years. You well, actually, I'm one up on you on that one. I I took three semesters of Hebrew. I can't I can't uh, <laughs> I can't remember a whole lot of it. It was a long time ago, but yeah, yeah. Uh, got to the point where I could read the Book of Ruth the whole way through. I, I'm you know I'm fairly good at I can even sight read the Torah. You know the Torah was written without vowels, right? So to actually read Torah the proper way, you have to kind of either deeply understand the Hebrew or memorize it. So I'm able now to kind of look over when someone else is reading it, sight read a little. So, which I consider a nice achievement. Yeah. It's just these. Yeah, that's that's the the Torah, the Navim, and the Ketcherim. The, 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 the that, 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 that was the trivia question, right? That was right? the trivia yeah. question, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's just right. So it's just the three vowels. Well, yeah, so, so t, the Tanakh, Torah, Navim, and Ketcherim. And that's the law, the writings, and the prophets, which are the three. The, the Hebrew Bible is divided up differently than the Christian Old Testament is divided up. The, now, the now, books go in a different order. In, is that so? Because uh, the order of the Old Testament sort of anticipates Christ better than the order of no, the... No, it's because of the Septuagint. The, um, when <clears throat> the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek by... Uh, supposedly by seven. All right, Jay, scholars. I'm going to need you to confirm this because uh, <laughs> who knows what yeah. he's saying. So, so the the Hebrew Bible is translated into Greek by seventy scholars, and and when they did that, they they uh, put them in in the order that that we have today, but also included some other books that are not included in the Hebrew Bible and also not included in the Protestant uh, Old Testament. Ah, okay. So, uh, is that your understanding, Jr.? Yes, yes, I think so. Yeah. Uh, if I might add, um, you know, I like to 
say I get a lot of my wisdom from Star Trek. <laughs> but I get a lot of my Jewish wisdom from a, a book called The Book of Why. You might be interested in consulting that sometime. It has a lot, you know, question-answer form. It, it really delves into a lot of... You had recommended a book to me a long time ago, which I really enjoyed, and I, I, I should have looked it up before. I can't remember the title of it. Um, mm-hmm. some, maybe something like Basic Judaism, or... Yeah, there, there are basic, yeah, there are basic Judaism books. Yeah, I, I, I appreciated that. It was, it was a good book, and I learned a lot. So actually, I want to, I want to give you one little sliver of comparative religion before we, uh, before we sign off here. So, you were mentioning that the, that the Torah is written without the, the vowels, right? Because Hebrew does not have any vowels. Um. No, it does have vowels, it's just not in the Torah. Well, it's not, not, not in the written text. I mean, it doesn't have vowels in the written text, right? So, so there was a time in, uh, maybe the 8th century, something like that, where, where uh, some Jews were taking the, the consonantal text and saying, no, it shouldn't be read this way. It should be read this other way. Okay. And then that's why you have the points in the, in the Hebrew text today. Because if you look at, if you look at a Hebrew text, it's got all the consonants. And it's got these little dots and lines and different well, things. Well, did it tell you what kind of vowel to insert? Yes, between exactly. The, okay. yeah. So that, that's the way the vowels appear in the text. But, but those things were added because, because the rabbis said, no, 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 no. This is the way we've always okay. read it. And we're going to, we're going to, um, inscribe that by adding these vowel points. Okay. So in other words, it seemed like you need something to keep the pronunciations consistent. Exactly. And, and not just the pronunciations because you can actually, in some cases, you can read it very differently. You can read different words without the, yeah, without okay, the vowels, yeah, sure. okay? Right? So, so basically what you have there is the traditional reading of the text now incorporated into the physical document, okay? There's this dispute in Christianity um, called Sola Scriptura, where the Protestants will say that the only, that, that the only rule for faith and practice is, is Scripture alone, not tradition or anything like that. But in this case, tradition is actually in the text, which I just I find see. fascinating because, because the traditional reading of the Jews actually is part of what's called the Masoretic text of the Hebrew Bible. All those points and vowels and all that kind of stuff, that's not original. That was added mm. much, much later, a traditional reading. All right. JR, you on board with that? Yeah, I'm fine with that. I mean, on top of that, uh what are called tropes or musical notes were also added. Ah. Uh, so that you won't find them in the Torah themselves, but they're considered part of the proper way to read the Torah. So you have to be familiar with those tropes as well. Very interesting. Yes, because I actually, when I was studying Hebrew, I asked a friend to have his, his uh, cantor son um, read the text for me so I could get what it sounded like. Right. And he sung it. Right, and I didn't know like how is he knowing what notes to sing? <laughs> so I guess he was referring what you were talking about that there was some other version of the text that he was able to get those uh, those notes from. Right, and there's a certain rhythm to them; they're not just thrown down the page willy nilly. There's a certain cadence to the notes. Right, the prophetic writings have their own set of tropes too, but the thing there is the, the vowels actually appear on the page. So. Huh. No memorization is required. Right. Deep study is required. So people who don't feel comfortable reading Torah will feel very comfortable reading the prophets. Yeah. 
All right. Well, I, I we've That's I've great. Answered, this that is was, fantastic. Uh, JR, you did a great job answering our I questions. Really we appreciate re- really appreciate it. Right. You guys have good holidays. Uh, yeah, you Stay too, well. and we'll get together for a beer sometime. Yeah, exactly. Soon. We'll actually get together in real life and, uh, and drink a beer together. All right. <laughs> Thanks All a right. lot. Take care. Yep. Please remember to subscribe to Beer in Conversation with Pigweed and Crow Hill and leave us a nice review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.